Transfer Sports Network listeners, welcome to the call sheet and also to the month of June. What an exciting time of year as you start to get a little summer vibe going. You start thinking barbecues, vacations. You got football and shorts going on here in, in my part of the world, Ocean City, New Jersey. I'm going to take my first plunge into the ocean. It's alley season. We call it alley season in our neighborhood, which means it's the time of year where we drag our chairs into the alley behind our house and we let all the neighborhood kids run wild and have some drinks with our friends. It's really a great time of year. So I hope you're as excited as I am. So I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and this is episode nine of our program. We're humming along, man. Ninth episode of the call sheet. Hey, if you can, give me a follow on Twitter at KTSmithFFSN. And you can also catch me over on the Steel Curtain Network, where I have a weekly podcast with Brian Anthony Davis called Here We Go, The Steelers Show. But the call sheet gives me a chance to talk to a broader audience about a wider variety of topics. And I'm thrilled to do it here at Fans First and to talk about the great game of football with everybody. So if you caught last week's show, we remembered the legendary Jim Brown. And we talked about his legacy as both an athlete and a cultural figure. And we we also looked at how Jim Brown defined the running back position for over a generation and at how the position has evolved over the past couple of decades. And that's a theme I want to pick up on here as we look at offensive innovation. Specifically, we're going to look at the innovation that's been talked about more than any other over the past decade, and that's the RPO, or the run-pass option. Before we examine this concept in more detail, and then later on in the second part of the show, when we talk about it with my good friend Sean Matthews, who's one of the best defensive minds I know and about how to defend RPOs, Let's just explain the concept and look at how they arrived in the game of football. So simply stated, an RPO gives the quarterback the option to throw the football or run it built into the same play. And when I say run it, I either mean by himself or he can hand it to a running back. More often than not, RPOs involve a quarterback handing it to a back. And he's going to make this decision based on his read of an unblocked defender. The thing that makes the RPO different from some of the read option schemes that have preceded it is that the RPO targets second and even third level defenders as the read key. In the past, when teams ran the old school veer option, for example, or more recently the zone read play, these were kind of the first read options. The idea of leaving a defender unblocked and having the quarterback read him that unblocked player was along the defensive front. But reading linebackers or even safeties and then throwing the ball off their movement, which RPO schemes do, that's the latest wrinkle in the never-ending chess match between offensive and defensive coordinators. It's the thing that makes RPOs so challenging for defenses, throwing the ball off of an unblocked defender. So how do we get to this revolution in offensive football? To answer that, let's think back to last week's call sheet show on Jim Brown. When Jim Brown was the prototypical NFL running back, the philosophy that defined offenses was basically to apply overwhelming force to a defense until it broke. Or in other words, pounding the ball down an opponent's throat. That was widely considered the best way to succeed for several reasons. I mean, for one, the risk was minimal. You weren't going to put the ball in the air, which meant you were going to minimize turnovers. You're going to control the clock. You're going to keep opposing offenses off the field. 
But it also honored the spirit of the game. Football, football was a tough sport played by tough men. And there was nothing tougher than trying to smash the ball down the field by running it between the tackles. You had fad schemes that arose from time to time, like the veer option and the run and shoot. And then even as sounder and more lasting systems that placed a greater emphasis on throwing the football emerged, like the West Coast offense, teams still used fullbacks and tight ends and still placed great value on playing power football. But to play that style, you had to be built for it. Power football often favored the bigger, faster, and tougher teams. In a mano-a-mano showdown, it's usually Goliath that wins, not David. And what the RPO did then was that it gave David a tool to use, like his slingshot, to take down Goliath. Like with most things, it's hard to know exactly when the RPO originated. There wasn't a rollout. It wasn't like an automobile company unveiling a new model. Galileo gets credit for inventing the telescope. Henry Ford is thought of as the father of the automobile. But each of those things existed in various forms before either man came along. The person who's often given credit as the architect of something is often the first person to do it in a way that appeals to the masses. So in that sense, the founding of the father of the RPO is, is Rich Rodriguez, the former head coach at West Virginia and Michigan, Arizona, amongst others. Rich Rod was the guy who first used RPOs as a core part of his offense back in the early 2000s. But teams were incorporating them earlier than that, even if the terminology wasn't yet in use. Hal Mummy, for example, the University of Kentucky coach who was a pioneer of the air raid offense and the spread philosophy, a real great innovator and giant in the, in the game of offensive football. Hal Mummy recalls that he first started using an RPO-style concept as early as 1997. And here's how it came about. Mummy realized that his guys simply couldn't block Florida All-American edge rusher Javon Curse. So instead of blocking him, Mummy left him unblocked, and he had his quarterback, Tim Couch, read Curse instead. What Mummy did was he called a bubble screen on the perimeter with a zone run inside. If Curse widened to defend the bubble, Mummy told Couch to hand the ball off. If Curse came down inside, Couch would throw the bubble. That's pretty basic stuff by today's standard. But 25 years ago, that was unheard of. Again, not the reading an unblocked defender part. Teams have been doing that for a long time. But throwing the ball off the unblocked defender, that was the revolution. What Mummy figured out and what Rich Rodriguez expanded on for the masses was a gift to every undermanned football team on the planet. If you don't have the horses to play Goliath football, be David. Tactics that Mummy introduced, like spreading the field with receivers and running a passing game predicated on spacing and timing, those things neutralized the advantage that big physical teams enjoyed when contests were played Goliath style. The RPO did something similar. When Mummy said, we can't block Javon Kerr, so let's unblock him, aka let's read him and make him wrong, he took away Kerr's best asset, his aggressiveness. Aggression is the primary principle on which defenses are built. Run the ball is the rallying cry of every DC in America. I should say run to the ball, not run the ball, run to the ball. And what the RPO does is it exploits that mandate by using the movement of a defense against itself. 
So in that sense, it gives the Davids of the football world, like Mummy's teams at Kentucky, who often had to play schools that they were simply outmanned against, like Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, it gave them a better chance to compete. I remember going to a coaching clinic way back in 2009 and sitting in on a session with Brian Flynn, who now coaches receivers at Princeton, and he was then the quarterback's coach at Villanova. And Flynn was talking about a stick draw concept he'd learned from Rich Rodriguez. The play went like this. The offense lined up in an empty formation, no backs in the backfield. They were in a spread configuration with slots and wide receivers on either side. So two by two on either side and an H back or a tight end on one side of the formation in tight near the offensive tackle. So the empty set was designed to open up the box as the defense would have to expand to cover the wide slots. And those slots on the snap were running bubble screens. So if the defense left one or the other uncovered, or if they didn't widen enough, the quarterback could just throw the bubble right away. That was his pre-snap read, meaning what he looked for as he was scanning the defense at the line before starting his cadence. Are they giving me the bubble with their alignment? That was his first essential look. And if the answer was yes, the quarterback threw it right away. These became known as now screens because the quarterback took them right now if he got a good look from the defense. But the tricky part of the play that Flynn was describing came post-snap. If the defense lined up in a way that eliminated the bubble screen as an option, the quarterback now read the linebacker to the side of the H-back or the tight end. We'll just call him the tight end for simplicity's sake. The tight end ran a stick route, which is basically where he runs up five yards uh, and then plants and makes a 90-degree out cut. He's cutting away from the leverage of the inside linebacker. The offensive line, meanwhile, is blocking draw. The tackles are pass setting and trying to run the defensive ends up the field. The guards are doing the same with the defensive tackles. And the center is chipping on one of those tackles and then climbing up to the second linebacker. That leaves the re-key or the linebacker lined up to the tight end. As the quarterback catches his snap, his eyes go right to that linebacker, right to that re-key. And if the linebacker stays in the box, the quarterback throws the stick route to the tight end. Remember, you've got the alley defenders or the the, the defenders outside the linebackers covering the bubble. So if the read key sits inside, the stick's going to be open. And on the other hand, if that linebacker runs out to cover the stick, the quarterback tucks the ball and he runs draw into the area where the backer has vacated. So when I first heard Matt Flynn describe that concept, my mind was blown. As Flynn said in his presentation, it's about creating a scenario where you can make the defender wrong, no matter which option he chooses. And that, for teams who weren't good enough just to line up and knock the defense off the ball, was a game changer. So I was an offensive coordinator back then, and our team was a bit of a David in a league full of Goliaths. And I remember taking that stick draw RPO back to my head coach and pitching it to him. We had a really good quarterback who was smart and could run, and I thought it would be perfect. I drew the scheme up on a whiteboard. I talked it through with our head coach. I pitched him on a few wrinkles, and then I waited for his response. But I really should have known better because our head coach at the time was as old school as it got. He'd been a fullback back in the 1970s when fullbacks were kings, and he was pissed by 2009 that offenses were widely removing fullbacks from the field. And he sat there with his arms folded across his chest and he waited patiently until I finished. And then he said the following. What? Are you trying to get our quarterback killed? We're not running any goddamn empty sets. 
And that was it. That was the end of that. And then I had to wait a few years until I became a head coach to start inserting RPOs into the offense. And the thing is, my old head coach wasn't the only one who resisted this evolution. High school and college teams were running RPOs for years before they made their way into the NFL game. And I think there's a few reasons for this. For one, some coaches will always have a particular idea about the way the game should be played. They're resistant to change. They don't like the idea of spreading things out and throwing bubble screens and dink and dunk passes that so many teams run now. Now, I had a coach tell me once, why do you even bother throwing the ball all the way out to the perimeter to make four yards? Just run the damn thing between the tackles. There will always be a school of coaches who think that way. And then second, to succeed in an RPO scheme, quarterbacks have to be trained in it. Most of the young kids playing the position today are, in fact, trained that way. The team that they, they learn the game from the shotgun, they're running read option and RPO schemes as early as Pop Warner. Heck, I, I coached my son's peewee team last year. That's eight, nine-year-olds. And we ran a jet sweep RPO, and it was money for us. Kids learn it at an early age, and they acclimate themselves quickly. And all the young QBs entering the league now, Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Trevor Lawrence, Jalen Hurts, they all know how to execute RPOs. So to the older QBs, though, the resistance comes from the fact that they didn't learn the game like that. When the Steelers changed offense coordinators in, two, in 2021 and they brought in Matt Canada, whose background was in the college game, Canada tried to introduce RPOs into Pittsburgh's scheme. But Ben Roethlisberger, who was entering his final year as Pittsburgh's starter, he was an old dog and he was not learning any new tricks. So the Steelers messed around with a few RPO schemes and they were terrible at them. And then they pretty much abandoned ship. And this led Steelers fans to curse the RPOs in general and to curse Canada in particular. You know, Roethlisberger is now retired. Steelers fans are still cursing Canada. I mean, that's a different topic. But the thing is, Canada's RPO schemes soured many of them on the game. And you hear it a lot from Steelers fans. RPOs are terrible. So yeah, there's resistance to them for sure. But a well-designed RPO scheme, when it's married up with a quarterback who knows how to run them, they can be deadly. Some quick examples. A common RPO scheme is to run double slant while pulling a guard. So you run a power scheme where the, where the backside guard pulls and the quarterback rides the running back. And meanwhile, you have two receivers to that side running slants. And that inside slant is essentially coming into the area that's going to be vacated if the backside linebacker follows the pulling guard. So essentially, you are using the aggression of the linebacker against himself. What's he supposed to do in that instance? Follow the guard and defend the run or sit and try to defend the inside slant. Another really common RPO is a, is a concept called glance, which is a real tough concept on defenses that takes advantage of the backside of a three-by-one set. So if you have trips to one side of the field and a single receiver to the other, you're going to run some sort of run action towards the trips. And what a lot of teams will now do, defenses will now do, is they'll, they'll drop the backside safety into that open alley on the other side of the three by one, right? So, so to the single receiver side, because they're trying to get that safety into the box as a run fitter. If, a t if an offense runs inside zone, the ball often cuts back to the backside and boom, now you've got that aggressive safety dropping all the way down to become that run fitter on the backside. What are teams doing to counter that? They're throwing a glance RPO, which is essentially a skinny post. And they're reading the backside safety. So the quarterback's riding the running back 
and his eyes are on that backside safety. And if that backside safety is dropping, he's throwing the glance. And if he's not, he's just handing the ball off and they're running inside zone. So those are just a couple examples of the myriad RPO schemes that exist in football today. So we're going to take a break now. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about how do you defend those schemes? Because on one side, you have the offense trying to trick the defense with the RPO schemes. And on the other side, you've got defensive coordinators trying to take them away. And we're going to talk to a defensive coordinator, my good friend, Sean Matthews, who's one of the best in the business here in the South Jersey football scene when we come back. So please stick around. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. And we're talking RPO football and it's matriculation up from the high school and college ranks into the NFL, where it's really become the biggest innovation in offensive football over the past decade. So in the second half of the show, we're going to be joined by a good friend of mine and one of the great defensive minds on the football scene here in Southern New Jersey. And we're going to talk about how you defend these things. So I'm going to bring in the defensive coordinator of our high school program at Ocean City, Coach Sean Matthews. Coach Matthews, what's going on? Coach Smith, what's happening? Long time no see. Yes, sir. Sean, I'm going to give him your bio real quick. Sean is a graduate of Roman Catholic High School in Philadelphia, where he was an all-city player at linebacker. Roman Catholic has been the home of some pretty good football talent, including Hall of Fame wide receiver Marvin Harrison. And so Sean and Marvin Harrison share the fact that they've both been inducted into Roman's Hall of Fame. And then Sean went on and played his college ball at Wesley College in Delaware, uh, where he was an All-American linebacker for the late, great Steve Drass. They had some great teams at Wesley there. And Sean's been with me at Ocean City since 2013. And since becoming the defensive coordinator in 2017, we've made the playoffs every season, including three trips to championship games. That's a good resume there, Coach Matthews. Tell me, what's the what's the secret to, to your football success? He- healthy living, is that the deal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess uh, getting to bed early every night, uh, which you bust my chops for. <laughs> um, no, I've just been, been surrounded by, you know, great coaches, great teammates, just push me to be the best I can be. And I can't say enough about the, the men that have molded me and, you know, helped me get into the position I am today and just, you know, teach me how to work hard, persevere, and play the game the right way. Well, I think I think a lot of people out there who are listening have this idea of offensive coordinators versus defensive coordinators. There were some pretty good memes about that on Twitter not too long ago. And the offensive coordinators were guys who had everything put together, nice tight haircut, good matching outfit, sunglasses all together. And the defensive coordinators were kind of wild men running around the uh, the Rex Ryan, Rob Ryan types with the hair and, and the beard. And I can tell you, I know you guys can't see Sean right now. But Sean absolutely fits the latter mold. He's a defensive coordinator through and through. He coaches with a ton of energy and gets the most out of our kids. So I'm fortunate to have him. All right, Sean, before we get into the RPO conversation, tell me why in your completely non-biased defensive coordinator opinion, why you and every other defensive coordinator in America believe that RPOs are cheating. I, I couldn't agree with that more. <laughs> it makes you defend the whole field. It's going to force you to be balanced. 
Because if you cheat against a, a good offensive mind and a good quarterback, you know, they're going to expose you. They're going to find it. They're, they're going to find the weakness. The last thing that, you know, I despise about it is how many one-on-ones it creates for the offense, you know, depending on how you align and depending on, you know, what kind of formation and schemes that they're going to run. So, you know, good offensive coordinators, they're going to find the one-on-one matchups and they're going to get their best guy on your worst guy. The, for any defensive coordinator, that, that's a huge problem. As a defensive coordinator, I mean, if you know that a team is a heavy RPO team, and and if you know if they're going to try to scheme you into those matchup advantages on their part, how do you prepare for that? How do you affect your preparation? What do you do with the defense to get them ready for a good RPO offense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes all the way back to, you know, like your, your mini camp and your summer practices and things like that. I mean, this stuff has to be built into your base defense. I mean, if you're not teaching this stuff day one, you know, you're behind the eight ball and teams down the road are going to give you some problems. The, the, the RPO game, it's going to, it's going to dictate your front. It's going to dictate your coverages, you know, how your players play in the secondary. If it's a third uh, level RPO, when you're reading safeties, it's going to affect the aggressiveness of your, of your safeties. I mean, it's going to put players in conflict and, you know, in order to, prepare the right way i think you have to put your players in the least amount of conflict as possible you know and try to simplify the game for them so they can play fast and do their job to the best of their ability right so can you talk about that 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 notion of conflict a little bit when you say it's going to put players in conflict for somebody who's listening who who might not quite understand what that term means what what are you talking about exactly so the the offense is going to be, you know, reading a player. So, for instance, like a first level, you know, your zone read RPO, uh, excuse me, RPO, the uh, the quarterback's reading the end man on the line of scrimmage. They're putting a defensive end in conflict. You know, are you going to sit there or are you going to, you know, sit on the quarterback? Or are you going to chase inside and run after the running back? You know, then you have a second level RPO where the the quarterback will be, reading an inside linebacker or maybe an overhang that's like outside the box. They're basically just looking to see if that second level defender runs and chases the the running back on a run read. Well, then we're going to throw something behind it, you know, behind him quickly in a zone that he vacated. I think of like what the Eagles did to Fred Warner and to the 49ers in the NFC championship game. I mean, Fred Warner is an unbelievable player, but you can see there's some plays where he's just kind of, He's sitting there for a reason, but, you know, he, he's maybe not as aggressive to, to attack the line of scrimmage and the Eagles are able to get some, you know, you know, get some money in the run game. So, you know, a third level RPO, now you're reading the safety. So if you got a safety that, you know, has to slam down in the box on a run fit, well, now you can throw like that glance route, at, you know, a dig at 10 to 12 yards or maybe like a skinny post you know, replacing where that safety just came from. So the offense is looking to see what you're doing defensively, and they're basically going to take an offensive player, you know, to replace that defensive player in the zone and just, you know, kind of hurt you with your aggressiveness and the way you're playing. Right. Before the break, I was breaking down just a couple of different RPO plays that are fairly common. And we talked about, to use our high school terminology, we talked about the Dallas concept, the double slant which we often run off of some kind of sweep action with both guards pulling because we know when teams have linebackers who are good guard readers that those guys are going to fly out of there. And then you're trying to open that little window where those guards have vacated to fit in that inside slant. But I think the one that's really interesting now is that glance concept because 
Now, let's say that you are running a three by one set and you got three receivers to one side of the field and just one on the backside. Teams oftentimes will drop the safety to be the run fitter into that empty alley to that single receiver side. And now offenses are getting aggressive attacking that by running skinny post over the top of it. And this is, you know, when I asked you about cheating, this is what I was positive that you were going to say. It's amazing how liberal the rules have gotten in terms of alignment downfield, because if you're throwing glance and essentially a skinny post to, to the X receiver off of an inside zone action, by the time the ball's out of the quarterback's hands, it's not uncommon for those linemen to be three and four yards down the field. So they've absolutely allowed for that gray area to expand in order to accommodate the RPO. So I'll ask you this question real fast. Just now that I'm sort of thinking about it, there's been a lot of rules changes that have made playing defense harder. And that's that's one of them. And we've had to, just in our high school program, you've absolutely seen it in, in the pros, really reevaluate how we tackle and how we go about trying to keep up with the changes that have gone on in the game. What are some of the that you've done as a defensive coordinator in order to prepare our guys to essentially play the game differently because of the rules changes from a tackling standpoint. I mean, you talk about like aiming points on a ball carrier or even a, a possible ball carrier, whether it's like a receiver coming across the middle about to catch the ball or, or anything like that. You know, we try to teach our kids to like focus on the, the strike zone. So you, know, you, you incorporate some baseball carry over here. So you talk about hitting a receiver or a ball carrier, you know, from their knees, up until their, you know, their numbers on their chest. Usually in those areas, when you're targeting that, you're staying away from that head and neck area, which can, you know, obviously lead to to dangerous plays, people getting hurt, you know, seriously, which, you know, nobody really wants to see in the game of football anymore. But most importantly, you know, from a competitive standpoint, you eliminate harmful 15-yard penalties, you know, that can be detrimental to a team. And obviously, you know, beneficial for the offense. You don't want to give them, you know, free yards at any point. Right. So I think, you know, following something like that can can help you. It's really been tricky, especially in the secondary, trying to teach those guys that that whole defenseless receiver thing is really tough because you got a guy making a play on a ball, trying to go through a receiver to break it up. And then referees trying to decide with the game happening at full speed what constitutes a, a clean and legal hit versus a, a, a hit against a so-called defenseless receiver. It's, it's not been easy, but <clears throat> you know, like everything else, the game will continue to evolve the way that it's played and coaches are just going to have to keep up. So, okay. So from a scheme standpoint, let's talk about, let's talk about what, what are some of the things that defenses can do scheme wise to make life harder on RPO offenses. When, when you're, scheming for a team that runs a good number of RPOs. What are some things that you can do to try to take them away or at least muddy the quarterback's reads? Right. So the the first question I'll I'll ask is, you know, what what's the offense best at? Like who's their best player? What's their toughest concept that they run? And then we'll try to figure out how can we take that away or at least make the the offense play left-handed. Okay. So if they do something really, really well, well we're going to do our best to make sure that they're not doing that. I like to be static pre-snap. Like I want to give the quarterback a clear picture and a clear look every single snap. 
before the ball is snapped. And then once the ball snapped, that's when you got to be different. That's when you got to be able to change up your fronts, you know, bring pressure, change your coverages, move guys from where they were pre-snap to post-snap. Now they're in a completely different spot. Pre-snap alignment can take a lot of easy throws away by the offense. So if you know a team puts like a dude in the slot and they want to throw you know, them the ball quickly, like in that Dallas concept you talk about. Well, if you cover down on him with like a, a nickel defender or like an outside linebacker and you solely give that defensive player the responsibility to take care of that double slant route by the number two receiver, that can be beneficial. Let's just say they never throw out to that guy. Well, then you could take that overhang, you could take that nickel, that outside linebacker, and then you could cheat him towards the box. If you're set in the front a certain way, for instance, if, uh, you know, the, the running back, if you want to make sure he doesn't keep the football often and he's being, you know, uh, he's, a, he's, he's getting a heavy amount of carries. Well, you can do things like you could set your, your one technique and your five technique to him, and then you can have that defensive end chase him and chase after that running back, which would hopefully force a quarterback to keep the ball a little bit more often. So, again, you're, you're having a less dangerous player keep the football. I think one of the most important things, again, is that alignment, you know, making sure that you're sound on the outside, you're not giving up easy throws or easy looks. And then another thing that I see all the time is, you know, teams just man it. You know, they'll man teams on the outside. It's really easy. You're taking guys out of conflict by, you know, giving them a person as their responsibility. And then, you know, the the downside to that is you just got to have dudes. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think there's many players in the NFL that feel comfortable covering Tyreek Hill one-on-one, you know, all the time, or some of these guys in college. So you got to figure out different ways to change things up and just throw as much as you can at an offense while being sound, while not being over-rotated to a side too often or anything like that. I mean, you really, really have to be balanced and you have to be different. Yeah. No matter what the sport is, if you can play good man defense, if, we're, if it's basketball, if it's lacrosse, if it's football, it takes away a lot of the problems that you encounter. I just know from an offensive perspective, when teams can man to man, go man on us and get an extra guy in the box and not have to play too high, it can make things difficult. They can usually outnumber you at the point of attack in some regard. You just have to be re- really creative with how you go about Getting those rece- getting those defenders off your receivers, whether it's rubs or motions or whatever you're, you're going to come up with. But it really can be a problem for an offense if a team can just lock you down man to man. So we're not really that team at Ocean City. We don't have a, an excess of athletes who can do that. So we've had to get creative. I, uh, and you've done a fabulous job with that. Obviously, it's been really beneficial at, at helping us to combat some of the problems that we've faced. So. As far as problems go, is there any one team that jumps out at you that's particularly difficult to stop? Is there anything that we've faced over the over the years or anything you've seen from the NFL or the college level that you think's really challenging from an RPO standpoint? Yeah, we see a ton of RPOs that involve the gap game. So where you have offensive linemen pulling, it could be a guard, it could be a tackle, it could be both. But I think when you're you're using the defense's rules and reads and aggression against them by sending linemen one way, and then you are basically 
going right back in the opposite direction where they just came from. To, to me, that that's tough because what are you going to tell those linebackers? Just slow down. Are you going to tell them to not follow the guards because that can lead to more problems down the road and, you know, for, for other plays that the offense wants to run during the game. So any type of a gap game RPOs, I really, really offensively, I like the spot route RPO by the number three wide receiver. So, you know, you're normally in a trip set. It could be out of 10 personnel. It could be out of 11 personnel where you have like a tight end H back hybrid off the ball, or it could be on the ball. It could be an online tight end kind of guy. But when you're, you're reading that number three wide receiver, you're putting, you know, that linebacker, that inside linebacker to the field in conflict. Cause nine times out of 10, that inside linebacker, to the trip side, he's going to be responsible for matching, you know, that number three wide receiver. So when you read him, you know, it definitely gives you some problems. Yeah. I was talking before the break about the first RPO concept I ever saw. It was at a clinic back in 2009. It was Matt Flynn, who's currently the receivers coach at Princeton. He was talking about stick draw with, with that stick route from the H back and running QB draw and and essentially you're getting six in the box and the O-lines block and draw and they're, and they're, they've got five guys covered up and the quarterback's just reading that backer to the H side. And if that H runs out with the, with the stick route, the QB just runs draw. And if the H sits inside, or I'm sorry, if the backer sits inside, he throws the stick to the H. And when I first saw that as a concept, it's an old Rich Rodriguez concept. I, I, I was like mind blowing. I just thought you can, you can do that. That's like, <laughs> you know, it didn't seem fair, but Hey, I'm going to get you out of here on uh, one more question for you. So, and this is really about RPOs more, more so just, just generally speaking, if you had to say that there's one thing that you stress to your players every single week, what's the one thing that your defense has to do every week in, in order to be successful, regardless of the opponent. This was really tough for me uh, thinking about this right now. You know, I want to, I want to scream like tackling. I want to scream effort, you know, those simple things, you know, those should be like non-negotiables. I would have to go with like eye discipline, you know, making sure guys are looking in the right spot pre-snap. And then when the ball is snapped, they have to continue to, to have their eyes in the correct spot because that's what's going to help them obviously do their job. And that's what's going to help them, you know, make plays. You do that in practice. That, that's got to be a focus during the practice week. You know, you got to put your players in the worst possible situations. You know, on your practice scripts, you got to add motions. You got to add shifts, window dressings to distract them and get their eyes somewhere else in practice. So then you can use it as a teachable moment and a teachable example when the, when the scoreboard ain't on. And then you need to have a good sequence of teaching. You know, you have to be able to address the, the eye discipline in practice, in individual specifically. So your fundamentals, okay, this is where your eyes are. All right. And then you go to like your small group and then your pod work before you get to a, to a team situation where you have all 22 moving parts going and rolling. It, it should be done in a progression to put the players in the best possible situation. But to me, I think it's all eye discipline. The, the eyes got to be in the right spot you know, in order for, for kids to make the right plays and the right reads and, you know, make good decisions and, you know, essentially do their job and help you win. That's great. Uh, so, so often I think people think it's about the, the big stuff, the scheme, everybody wants to jump in on the scheme, but the preparation is really the thing that's the most paramount. You talk about eye discipline offenses, talk about things like the steps 
that the, that lineman take or the or the alignment of a receiver is is his split right? Does is his release right? Right? Like, is if he's supposed to outside release the alley player, but he inside releases him instead? How does that compromise the integrity of the rest of the routes? Does he does he cover somebody else because he takes the wrong release? So often, those are the things that affect the success of a play, and it's not the scheme. The scheme's the fun stuff to talk about, but the stuff that makes it work, like you said, is are, are the little details. So, Coach, man, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you, you taking the time. Coach Matthews got a got a little – how old's Bo now? Bo's a uh, Bo. He's a year, a year and a half now, and he's full of piss and vinegar. Yeah, man. Bo's, <laughs> Bo's going to be a bruiser. Bo, <laughs> Bo's going to run through some balls in his day. So, so I appreciate Coach taking the time as, as he's uh, – it, it's, it's time to get Bo to bed. So, I'm going to let him go. Hey, that's a good another edition of the call sheet. Coach Matthews and I, we're gonna we're gonna get to work soon on on our season. We're, we've got our mini camp coming up in a couple of weeks, and for NFL fans out there, it's not going to be long before teams are into their camps. So there's a there's a lot to talk about, and it's an exciting time of year. So I'm looking forward to to talking to everybody about that. Coach, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. And, no doubt, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, right on. So. To everybody, man, again, another another great episode of The Call Sheet. Thank you for, for getting on with us, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>